Now we come to, in our series, Systematic Theology, the most confusing part of it. Um, just the front of our, of our diagram, it says diagrams of major eschatological systems, and that all gets us fired up. Amen? It's like, awesome. Okay. Um, this is actually, um, was put together by Dr. Paige Patterson. He's the president of Southwestern Seminary. So the notes, I forgot to mention this last week, the notes that are on your copy are just notes that I scribbled down when I heard him give this presentation. Um, I'm going to give you kind of my take on it and some more verses. So don't think that what's on there is necessarily saying this is the position to take or this is not um, the position to take. But um, when I was in high school... How many of you remember the Left Behind series? Left Behind series, okay. And it just, there were so many copies sold that I think Liberty was one of the major um, recipients of Tim LaHaye's generosity off of that. They actually started uh, like a prophecy center as well. Tim LaHaye was very generous with his money, but that was back in, during the 90s. And if you're in the 90s, what was looming in the future that most people were afraid of? Y2K. Now, we're not going to have a confession here tonight how many of us bought, you know, a submachine gun, a lot of rice and water for Y2K. But uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear. Um, you even take the political things, like, like seriously, like Waco, um, where the government went in with tanks. And a lot of people were killed, and depending on where people fall upon the sides of who was right and who was wrong, there was a lot of uncertainty. The U.N., um, there's a lot of uh, growing of that during that time. So then all these people will come to the Bible where it speaks about, like in Revelation chapter 20, the, um, I guess we could say the fulcrum of debate and what we're going to talk about tonight. People begin to be very, very concerned with Bible prophecy. And this even goes back to, as we talked about uh, the week before last, 1948, okay, when Israel came out of the ashes of Nazi Germany, the ashes of an Arab-controlled part of the world, and people begin to take prophecy seriously again. So what we're going to do is just look at the major ones, okay? The major interpretations that people have taken. We're not going to look at every, because uh, we could be here all night. In fact, uh, if you look over on the last uh, page, page number four, realized eschatology, that's just something that um, Dr. Patterson put in there, I think, just for... Uh, more of entertainment value. Also on page number three, uh, the partial rapturism. That's not necessarily a serious view, but um, we'll, we'll try to discuss it anyway. Um, the first one there on the first page, post-millennialism. All right. Now first, let's let's define our terms. When we speak of millennialism, it, it's referring to the thousand-year reign of Christ. Okay. If you're taking notes. It may be helpful on the first page to just put it down like this. Postmillennialism believes that the reign of Christ is present now. Through the preaching of the gospel, through the spread of missions, postmillennialism is the thousand years are right now and it's not necessarily literal, okay? Because it's been going on for more than a thousand years since Jesus has been uh, ascended to heaven. Next one would be amillennialism. Um, over there on the next page, if you want to make a note. Uh, all millennialism says that there is no literal thousand-year reign. That is simply figurative. Uh, it's symbolic. There is no um, actual literalness to the thousand-year reign. So the amillennialist says that the kingdom of God is in my heart. 
Okay, that means there's not there's not going to be Jesus Christ literally reigning as King on the earth for a thousand years. What the amillennialist believes is that Jesus could come back at any minute, and when He comes back, there is no literal tribulation. That's always been. So Jesus returns five minutes from now. There's the judgment, and then you enter into eternity. All right, and then we come to the premillennialism. All right, and that's probably where most Baptists would fall. Um, the premillennialists have several camps, but basically it says this: Jesus is going to return after the tribulation. All right, and once Jesus returns after the tribulation, there's going to be a thousand years to where He reigns as King on the earth, and after the thousand years. It's going to have the new heavens and the new earth, and then history will be um, changed uh, as we know it. And then within premillennialism, we'll talk about uh, the different views. But I don't know about y'all, but just confessing this as your pastor, this is going to be, out of everything we've talked about, I'll be the least dogmatic about this than anything. Okay? I think a lot of times this has caused a lot of harm in the church with people saying, I've got it all figured out, and they try to ramrod one particular view, which all of these views have difficulty. That's why godly men and women have held all different ones. But the difference is, if you want to just make an asterisk by all of these, the difference between a Bible-believing Christian and someone who doesn't believe the Bible is that classic liberalism says that Jesus is not coming back because there's no resurrection of the dead. Right? There's no resurrection of the dead. Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. It was a spiritual resurrection, so he's not actually coming back. All of these views here are Bible-believing views where they said Jesus is coming back. We just disagree on exactly when, and all that, all that shakes down. Um, one guy said, this is, this is an old, old joke. He says, I'm a pan-millennialist. That means in the end, it's all gonna pan out. Alright, so wherever we fall on this, we believe that Christ is coming back. So let's go to the first one there, post-millennialism. Um, this view believes that the spread of the gospel through missions is going to be so successful that it's going to dominate the whole world. Which means, if you're a post-millennialist, it means that right now the millennial reign of the church, of Christ reigning through us, is going to be so powerful that as missions and as preaching progresses, more and more people are going to be saved. There's going to be a rise in the percentage of Christians to where it's going to eventually be so many people are regenerate, so many people are saved, that it is going to be God's will on earth. Remember what Jesus prayed in Matthew chapter 6, right? You're as in heaven, right? Like God's will is done on earth. Uh, you might want to make a note as well about the parable of the mustard seed. Okay, The mustard seed is a very small seed, and then it grows into this tree. And Jesus gives an illustration of the kingdom of God as like a mustard seed. It starts out very small. How did it start out? You had 11 disciples. right? did have 12, but one was a traitor. 11 disciples, but it spread. Now, if we had been alive in the 1800s, probably a lot of us would have held to this view. Up until World War One, what you saw um, from William Carey is, and from the other missionaries, Lottie Moon, you saw places like Burma, 
places like China, Hudson Taylor with the China Inland Mission. The gospel was going out from America, from Great Britain, from Europe, into very unreached areas of the world. David Livingston, the first white man to basically make it in and out of Africa alive, it was called the white man's graveyard. The gospel penetrated into Africa. So what we would have seen is like, wow, the Bible does talk about the spread of the gospel. Let me give you a few passages that we're not going to uh, get into, but you can go look it up later. Psalm 47 and Psalm 72, and also Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. In that text, Jesus says that the gospel will pre- be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. In Matthew 13, and that's the, the metaphor of the gospel growing and expanding, the kingdom of God is a present reality. We would have said, you know what, it seems like the gospel is dominating, right? I mean, it seems like that Europe and and the U.S. to where it is historically Christian, it's just going into all the world. And then something happened in 1914, the beginning of World War I. And then these so-called Christian bastions, Christendom, the nations of Europe, we're slaughtering each other with nerve gas, with mustard gas, with machine guns, with artillery. And you saw the greatest civilization in the world at that time, Europe, absolutely laid waste. And it caused a lot of people to say, you know what? Maybe things are not getting better. And then when you progress a little further on World War II, the scale of devastation, not just in Europe, but in all around the world. Basically, South America and North America were the only ones that were not ravaged. The Japanese went into Manchuria, the Rape of Nanking, if you've ever heard or read about that book. The whole world was, I mean, and then out of World War II, you get this thing called the atom bomb, right? And then from World War II, you get the the imbalance of power, and then you get this thing called communism that really takes off. And then from communism, they begin to arm people called... Um, what we call terrorists. And so now you've got the world as we know it, and it's a lot different than maybe 120 years ago when people thought technological innovation is going to take us into a new golden age. So the way that the world has changed since then has caused a lot of people to change from this view. So if you're making notes, I would just say that the post-millennialist view is optimism. It's saying things are going to get better, and from things getting better... um, that's going to usher in the reign of Christ. And somebody says, okay, well, what about Revelation chapter 20, which that's where we're going to be. They say, well, what about the thousand years that's mentioned there? The post-millennialist says, well, it's not actually a literal thousand years. Okay, they just leave it, they just leave it at that. Um, one question that we may ask the post-millennialist is this. What about in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 12, when Jesus talks about the great falling away where the love of many will grow what? Grow cold. And that's a very deep verse because the disciples, in fact, if, you're, um, if you have your Bible, it'd be good to hang a place in Revelation chapter 20 and then in Matthew 24. There's a lot of other texts, but due to time constraints, we're just going to be able to stay with those. Matthew 24 <clears throat> in verse number 3. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what is the sign of your coming, and of the close of the age. Now, depending on how we understand the and here, it could be that Jesus was referring to 
the coming of Christ, the end times, all in one, or Jesus is addressing the end times and his coming at two separate events. But Jesus speaks about, uh, in verse number 11, if you will make a note, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. According to this verse, according to Jesus, it doesn't seem that the closer you get towards the end, the better it's going to be. If you were to kind of break this down for somebody, how would you describe Jesus' take on the way it's going to be before the end is going to come? Okay. Okay. Right? Yeah. We, we definitely in our country have seen a decline, right? And just everything, because people used to leave their keys. From what I'm told, this is never a reality in my, in my generation. People always left their keys in their car, because if you don't leave your keys in your car, what's going to happen to them? You're going to lose your keys, right? Hello, our existence. But in the U.S., that's not the way it is. Once again, just our experience doesn't mean that that's representative of the whole, but it is an interesting world if we had imagined. And just one more point on this before we move on. Before World War I, you had seen in uh, the last hundred years before that started, you had seen all sorts of cures to things that had ravaged the world. Louis Pasteur and all of his, which he was actually a strong Christian, a strong believer, Louis Pasteur, all sorts of cures had been invented. We were now able to do farming uh, on a mechanized level to where we could feed ourselves, and really starvation was nothing of a threat compared to what it was at the beginning of 1800. Can you imagine that? And then every, we've got technological innovation, we've got the gospel going out, we've got Europe who's just continuing to build a knowledge, and then the powder keg, the, was it Archduke Ferdinand, the assassination there, and then it all went downhill. And then we know that the, uh, the 1900s of the 20th century, there were more Christians killed in the past century than all of the other centuries combined. Okay? So we know just the data says, at least in the past hundred years, it's gotten worse. Okay? Alright, so let's go over to amillennialism. And, uh, in Greek, if you want to negate something, you just put the alpha in front of it. So like atheism, atheism, it means no, uh, theism. Um, like the Dallas Cowboys this past Monday night, uh, ah game, which means they had no game or ah skill. Or self-destruct, Jonathan. I know you enjoyed Amen. The, the Cowboys killing themselves, but uh, yeah, the amillennialism. If you noticed, we have the diagram with the present age. All right, the church and the parousia. That's just a Greek word for the return of Jesus. Could be at any moment. Now, if you're taking notes, I would write this down. It is very similar with what we just talked about: postmillennialism. <clears throat> It means that there is no literal millennium. There is no earthly reign of Christ. What it basically is, it's a a negation of all the other views. Okay? So if you're a post-millennialist and you say, well, the reign of Christ is through the church right now, the all-millennialists would say, no, it's not. Well, what do you believe it is? The return of Christ is imminent. It could happen any minute. Well, what? That's it. 
And then the premillennialist would say, well, we've got the great tribulation is going to come, and then Jesus is going to come back, and then the great, uh, or the thousand years, and then the amillennialist would say, no, that's not it. So, let's go to Revelation chapter 20. This is a great, um, I think, line of reasoning to go with a person who holds this view. Revelation chapter 20, there in verse number 5. Okay? The Bible says, then I saw thrones and seated on them, were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a what? Thousand Thousand years. The dead... The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Exclamation point. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay. Problem... For the amillennialists, as they say, there's simply one resurrection. When the text says that there's going to be a first resurrection, and then if we were to read on, beginning in verse number 11, there's going to be another resurrection. This would be uh, the resurrection for those who are going to hell. Let's just go ahead and read that, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne... And him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death... And Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So when the scripture talks about a resurrection to life, which means the resurrection of the righteous dead, who will enter into the presence of God, and then there is a resurrection to everlasting shame in 1 Thessalonians. Okay? The amillennialists would say, well, we know that Revelation 20 talks about two resurrections, but the first one is spiritual and the second one is physical. Well, there's no indication of there being any difference, right? So this may be, an, I think it's a, it's a sign of them trying to defend their position by twisting um, Scripture. Um, they would also say to you, if you're a premillennialist, which means you believe that Jesus is going to come back, then there's going to be, uh, or he's, there's going to be the rapture, the seven years, and then the thousand years. They would say, you know, the problem with you premillennialists is that the only place that a millennium is mentioned is the book of Revelation. Any responses to that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just because it's... Right. Yeah, good. Like, how many times does God have to say it, you know? And then even in that text that we just read, uh, in verses uh, 4 through 6, it had the word first resurrection several several times. Um, We can say to them, all right, 
So if the thousand years is just a symbol, what is the symbol for? And here's a well-known amillennialist, B.B. Warfield. Um, I love the name B.B. I mean, imagine how that would go today, naming your kid. And his actual name was Benjamin Breckenridge. No wonder he went by B.B. So here's what B.B. Warfield says that the thousand years symbolize. The sacred number seven in combination, y'all are going to have to stay with this, okay? You've got to be really smart to be an amillennialist. He says, the sacred number seven in combination with the equally sacred number three forms the number of holy perfection, ten. And when this ten is cubed into a thousand, the seer or the prophet has said all he could say to convey to our minds the idea of absolute completeness. So in other words, when the book of Revelation uses the word thousand years, it's not referring to a literal thousand years. It's trying to get us to understand that it's referring to God's complete reign. Whether that be in our hearts, whether that be over Satan, but it doesn't have anything to do with being literal. But in order to find the completeness, you have to add 7 to 3 and then cube uh, 10 and get your 1,000. And then from your 1,000, you have to deduce from that that it means completeness. Any, any math questions for the amillennialists at this point? Does it just seem to y'all like that may be a little bit difficult to get that out of kind of the plain reading of the text? Maybe, maybe it's just me, but I don't really know if the point of John in giving us the revelation or the apocalypse, the unveiling, was so that we could add this to this and then put uh, a squared there or cubed it. And then from that we say that this number equals this this idea of, of completion. And we can also ask them about what about the two resurrections? Okay? Because it clearly teaches that, but they say one is spiritual and one is physical. Alright? And that's, that's the amillennial position. Okay? Which means there's not going to be a literal tribulation. Okay? That's what always has been. Alright, now let's move to premillennialism. And once again, premillennialism means that Jesus' return is before the thousand years. And this first position will probably be the most popular one today, uh, called pre-tribulationism. All right? um, another thing to write down is that most who hold this are what's called, we've got a lot of big words tonight, okay? is dispensationalism. Anybody want to familiar with that or want to take a stab? James? It's basically breaking down um, periods of time in the Bible. Uh-huh. And in each period of time, God dealt with people with weight, always into the judgment. Right. Yeah. And that's one thing, a question that came up on, on Sunday um, in Jonathan's class. The idea, or the question, uh, rather, did God give people grace beginning with the New Testament? And did the Old Testament, did the Old Testament saints gain salvation through works, and did only the New Testament believers gain it through the gift of salvation, through grace? We know that God has, it's always been by grace, that the law was given to show us the knowledge of our sin, but as James said, a dispensationalist would say, it's always been through grace, but God has given different ways for people to understand him throughout throughout history. Um, so scripture, I would make this note, 
The premillennialist, pre-tribulationalist would say that we should interpret Scripture literally. And it doesn't have to be all the time literal. But if that's the best, the natural reading of the text, it should be interpreted literally. Okay? Uh, like the Ryrie Study Bible. Does anybody have the Ryrie Study Bible? Okay? James, anybody else? Alright, Charles Ryrie would be a dispensationalist. Okay? Saying that God has revealed himself at different times in different ways to different peoples, all having to do with salvation by grace through faith. So let's look at our, our diagram. This is probably the most detailed diagram out of any of the views. Um, we've got the present age. That's us. The next thing that we have to look forward to is the harpazo, which is the Jesus snatching us up through what we would call the rapture. Okay? The harpazo would be the snatching out. That's, that's the rapture. If you've ever wondered what that concept has to do with, he's snatching us out of the world. And then there would be the bema seat of Christ, what we talked about last week, the judgment of believers for what they've done with Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb, then seven literal years of tribulation, and then the parousia, or the return of Jesus, the second coming. And um, a few passages to give you, if you want to turn there with me, you can, would be uh, for the return of Christ, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 17. And the Bible says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right. So they would say that's referring to the rapture. Let's go to chapter five, verse nine of the same book. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So they would say that God will not allow us to go through the great tribulation. Now, if this is true, wouldn't that be nice? I don't know if anybody would say, yep, that would be great to go through the great tribulation. Let's stay in the same book and go back to chapter uh, 1 and verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers from the what? The wrath that comes. They would say that God has not appointed us for wrath, which means that we will not go through the great tribulation. Okay? They would also say that the word church is not mentioned in the book of Revelation past chapter 4. Which from that, they would say that the church will not be present during the great tribulation. Alright? Any Any questions? About this, and this would, this would, by the way, be the view of uh, Tim LaHaye and the, the Left Behind series. A lot of the popular, uh, I guess we could say, prophecy people today—they're almost all holding to this view. <clears throat> I would say today, past World War II, a lot of them—they're pre-millennial. Not all of the pre-trib. Like the rapture is going to come before the tribulation, but a lot of them. But um, here's here's a question. Here's a question that that I would have for uh, people who are very dogmatic about this view. The word church in the Greek is ekklesia, which means it's like a gathering. The ones who sit in an assembly, like us, that's not the only word used for Christians. 
right? You've got hagios, the saints. You've got those who are believers, okay? And when you read past Revelation chapter 4, this is, this is, we're just trying to be fair and honest here. What's that? Yes, the elect. Very good. That's very prominent in, in Revelation. You see not only Christians in the book of Revelation, but you see a lot of them, especially in chapter 7, who were killed during the Great Tribulation. Now, the person who believes in a pre-tribulational rapture, we'll call it just pre-trib, they say that's Jewish believers. Well, it just says, it just says a lot of them are there, and they are clothed in white because they've been killed during the Great Tribulation. So a question that I would have is if there's no Christians in the Tribulation, then why does the text in Revelation chapter 7 say that there is an innumerable multitude of them who were killed during it? Um, Another question that I would have is, if we associate God has not delivered us for wrath, If the wrath is the great tribulation, then God has probably done wrong to most of the believers in the past who've been in tribulation. Because Jesus says, if you want to take notes on this too, um, John chapter 16 verse 44, in the world you will have tribulation. Jesus said, I mean, all sorts from the words of Jesus, Peter, Paul, throughout the New Testament, there is the, the charge to endure persecution, to endure tribulation. Another passage, uh, another verse from that same area in John, he's praying for believers. Mm. He says, uh, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, I ask you to protect them. Right, right, yeah. And for us as American believers, most of us have never experienced true persecution for Christ. So it's almost, we have a presupposition, an assumption that it would be unlike God to allow us to endure a tribulation, great or small, on that scale. Which if we look back at most Christians in the world, they've been through a lot of persecution. Okay, Once again, we're not saying that this view is wrong, we're just saying that we do find Christians in the great tribulation. Okay, We do find a lot of them killed. And then if there are no Christians in the Great Tribulation, what do we do with all of Jesus' exhortations to endure during tribulation? And number four, I would say that if we associate wrath with the Great Tribulation, then we may be misassociating those terms because we know that ultimately Jesus has saved us from the wrath of God, right? The, the wrath of God and hell and through the ultimate judgment that the wrath of God does not necessarily a specific period of time where things are really bad here. So those any any questions there? We're just trying to be fair and ask the tough questions for all the So after the rapture, I mean it doesn't in in the Hayes books, after the rapture, if you're left behind, you would hold to the view that you can still become a Christian, right? So that like up those that chapter seven is talking about? I th- I think you could. I think you could. Yeah. But the question mm-hmm. is if you can't be a Christian now, like four then how are you gonna how you gonna be a Christian then? That, I'm not saying you can't. It would be more convincing. How, yeah, how, how, much more, how much more would it be? Right. That's that's actually during ages before I would definitely believe after the same. 
But let's let's um let's jump through mid trib and post and then we'll we'll discuss this. We don't have much time, but mid tribulationalism is basically the same thing um, as what we just talked about, except for the rapture comes in the middle of the tribulation. Okay? Some would call this the pre-wrath um, position. Um, once again, I don't really see that as the strongest position because in the, in the, in the book of Revelation, the this, this seven years has a lot to do with Satan's wrath against believers and not just God's wrath against the world. Um, the partial rapturism means that, this is, this is a little bit humorous, but um, if you're a faithful Christian, when Jesus comes to return um, and get his belief, actually the rapture, if you're faithful, he will rapture you out. But if you have been a disobedient Christian, he will leave you here for the great tribulation to be purified by fire. So, um, well, you know, except for, for those Christians that, what's that? What's that? Yeah, pre-trib and then... Um, pre-trib? Pre-trib and mid It breaks down to be basically the same, though, after the bulls. But, um, uh, post-trib uh, means that we enter into, like the Great Tribulation could start tomorrow, all right? We endure it or we die as Christians. And then the rapture, notice where the harpazo is, the snatching out. When Jesus comes at the battle of Armageddon about to destroy everyone who has refused to repent, he will rapture out his church to meet him in the air. Meet him doing what? The post-trib would say meet him coming to give judgment on the earth. So he will rapture us out almost at the same instant Jesus will return, give justice to the world, and then... Once that's taken care of, that is the return of Christ. Then that enters into the millennial reign, the literal thousand years of Christ. So the post-trib would say that believers will not suffer the wrath of God. All right? The wrath of God is hell, not just um, something on earth. They would say that truly in the book of Revelation, the ultimate wrath of God is the battle of Armageddon to where Jesus comes, and it's no more Mr. Mr. Nice Guy's undiluted justice. It also say that the believers will suffer persecution. Believers don't suffer the wrath of God, but they suffer persecution, which would be the wrath of Satan. In Revelation chapter 12, Satan's wrath is great against, against the church. And they would say that, that tribulation has been normal um, for God's people, and the metaphor, or the story rather, from the Old Testament that they would use is in um, the book of Exodus, when God put out the ten plagues upon Egypt. He didn't take the Israelites out of Egypt, but he protected them while he was judging everyone around them. In other words, they did not suffer the wrath of God. Remember, their their animals were protected, their families were protected from the angel um, of death, and so forth and so on. Um, and then Matthew uh, 24, for the post-trib, Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 29 Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and...
Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect, this is referring to the second coming, obviously, uh, from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. So the rapture would be more of the calling of believers out so that God could come in and carpet bomb it, which would be the second return of Christ, the battle of Armageddon. But the pre-trib rapture, the mid-trib rapture, the post-tribulational return of Christ and rapture at one event, all of those believe in a literal thousand years. Okay? And um, any any questions, observations? By the way, if this seems confusing, um, this, this is what has felled forests for paper to write over the past 2,000 years um, of the church. All right? So this is not easy. And... Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pre-tribulational, or I'm, I mean a pre-millennial person, alright? I'm not convinced that the, the rapture happens at the beginning of the seven years. That would be great. There's some great arguments towards that. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm willing to talk about it, entertain it. I'm very non-dogmatic, um, about any view except for that Jesus is returning. And that may sound strange for a pastor, but I've, I took a course in this in my master's. I read about it all in college. I'm by no means an expert. Took a course over the summer, a PhD level with Liberty, and I'm still saying, boy, it can go all of these different directions. I think there's very certain, as best I know it, there's going to be a literal thousand years, but when Jesus returns in regards to the tribulation before, in the middle, or after, I'm not exactly sure. That may be strange for people to hear that, but I don't want to be a pastor who has the disease of expertitis. Okay, I think that's very dangerous. So I don't want. Well, if you look at what what's happening, you, you've got to have some kind of understanding or a time frame in what's happening. I mean, the millennium, no matter which one you want to believe, doesn't just happen all one time. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Right. There are certain things going to scripture that's going to happen. Well, if you're, if you're an, if you're a post-millennialist or an all-millennialist, then it, it's not even going to happen at all, really. The Antichrist rises and everybody loves him. Mm -hmm. And that don't mean that just the Americans love it. That means everybody in the world. Right. Except the Christians that know Mm -hmm. that. And that's either going to be... In your lifetime that the world loves. I have. Now, I've seen leaders that some, well, maybe the United States, though, but the Germans mm-hmm. didn't like them, or some of them at some point, you know. Right. This is a leader that's going to rise, and at the first part, you're going to really like him. He may do some great things, he may cure cancer, or, or cause the world to be in peace. And If, good. if if you're pre millennial. Pardon my expression, but the stuff hits the fan and you find out who he is. And then yes sir, that's when you can't, you know, trade in the marketplace unless you got the sign. Well that's telling you you're gonna start to do. I mean that could be done, you know, 
they talk about, you know, they got a little chip, they put the dial in there, and you can find him if he gets lost. Well, that may be done to him. People get credit cards. It doesn't mean, really, that you're going to put an X on your forehead or on your hand. But mm -hmm. certain things have to happen. Before the millennium, whichever one you want to believe in. Right. Well, all of the premillennialists believe that there are a lot of things that has to happen. Like you said, the rise of the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 9, that he's going to come. Um, the premillennialists, or the pre-trib, before the tribulation, they believe he's going to rise beginning of the seven years, and he's going to do things. Everybody's going to love him, like you mentioned, Calvin, at the beginning, at the, at the middle point, three and a half years. That's where it's all going to, literally, hell's going to break loose. It, About three and a half so. years, everybody think he's. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at Revelation, Satan, he tries to copy the mm -hmm. uh, He has hell for him. Right. He's going to have a little help. Right. That's one of the heads of the beast. And uh, people really don't like him. Like I say, Right. And that, that brings up an, an interesting point that it says even even the elect would have been deceived. And I don't remember exactly where that reference is. Somebody it's like Matthew 24. Okay. So Matthew 24. Yeah. Yeah. Which which leads me to believe that if the elect are there, then they're there. Still. Whether that's the beginning of the tribulation or whether it's midway through. Some of the Amelians believe that it's already down, it's already happened. They would say that the spirit of Antichrist has always been in the world. They would say that revelation is simply symbol, that the only thing that we're going to look forward to is Jesus could come back right now, there'd be the ultimate judgment, and we'd enter into eternity. Which I don't hold to that view. I hold to you know, there's going to be literal seven years. Whether we're there the whole time, whether there, we're there, we get taken out the beginning, or whether we're taken out at the three and a half year mark before it really gets bad, I'm not exactly sure. Okay? And my only, my only issue is when people are very dogmatic about that, and they come into church, they begin to tell everybody else, and they've got their underlying copy of, you know, left behind, just, I think that, and I'm serious, I think we all would do extremely well to just look at all of the godly people who have held to the different views, even the post-millennialist and even the amillennialist, which I don't hold to at all. I want to be very careful of myself and make sure that God gives me a great dose of humility before I begin to characterize and make fun of their position. Even if I don't see it at all, very godly people. So, this is an... Right. Um, you're not prepared. I think it would be better to think we could go through something. You know, and we better be prepared for it. And then if God takes you out of it before then then great. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. But not to have that false hope that I'm gonna be out here go mad, I don't need to work right. and all that. Which that would be pretty nice, but but then we're, we're we're out of time. But one thing I would leave us with a thought, regardless of what happens in the end, in the New Testament the viewpoint was reversed from ours, and I think it was Acts chapter 5. They rejoiced 
that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Stretched out on racks, being beaten in prison. So, outside of any tribulation, whether we're here, whether we're not, if we suffer for Jesus, if we die for Jesus here, or if if a lot of people are wrong and we do go into the tribulation, we will be eternally able to honor God with our lives by giving it on the altar of sacrifice. And I think as longer eternity goes, the more I will wish that I look, looking back, that I would have sacrificed more for the Lord.